Ground Cover News is a nonprofit street paper that was founded in April 2010 as a means to empower low-income persons to make the transitions from homeless to housed and from jobless to employed. Vendors purchase each copy of the Ground Cover News regular edition at our office for 50 cents. This money goes towards production costs. Vendors work selling the paper on the street for $2, keeping all income and tips from each sale. This audio production was made possible by the Ann Arbor District Library, recorded at Fifth Avenue Studios. If you consistently enjoy Ground Cover Speaks, continuing to buy physical newspapers from Ground Cover vendors ensures that we can sustain production. The physical paper and in-person interaction is at the heart of our work. You can find the link to our next audio recording in the upcoming print issue of Ground Cover News. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to our print advertisers, the People's Food Co-op, St. Francis of Assisi Parish, First Baptist Church, Bethlehem United Church of Christ, the Office of Community and Economic Development, Cineholic, Art on a Journey, Ann Arbor for Public Power, Four Directions, and the Ypsilanti Food Co-op. Vote Pile for President in 2024. 2024 presidential candidate Ashley Powell lives in and loves Michigan. She just turned legal age to run for office August 30th this past summer, but when she she has been registered to run for the with the Federal Election Commission since 2019. Ashley has several things she's hoping to rally support for in her campaign. A few include the United States Agriculture Corps, a national program created to bring jobs to rural areas and finally create food security, the Homeless Tier Act, which classifies the six major reasons people are homeless, providing a designated area with shelter, police, fire, and medical services. She started the Motor City Brick to Farmer Challenge, 50 Million Bricks One Challenge. The goal of the challenge is to sell 50 million bricks and use the funds to build greenhouses in Metro Detroit. www.50millionbricks.com When Ashley is not working to save the world, she can be found reading at the gym or listening to music. Take extra care of your dog dealing with anxiety. Cindy Gear, ground cover vendor number 279. Dogs are considered family members. We go to extraordinary lengths to make sure they are comfortable and well adjusted to living in our homes. But for some dogs, it can take time to feel safe. For some dogs, like pound puppies, it can take even longer because of kennel cough and the trauma of being in doggy jail for months. Here are some ways to help your dog deal with your time away from home. They will feel better as time goes by. Number one, call your dog on a ring doorbell or even on TV and do two-way talk. He will love seeing you on the screen. Doing this one hour before you get home will help them know you are on your way. Two, leave a radio on to help him pass the time for your dog. Even recording your voice can help them. Three, take a night t-shirt and wear it to bed and place that shirt on 
their day bed in the morning. It will help them feel your presence and can help them calm down as they nap. Four, getting an anxiety jacket can help them calm down when you are away. This is a new thing that operates on the principle that if you apply pressure to the dog's torso, it, can, it has a calming effect. They're available online. I do hope this can help with your dog this wonderful year 2024 and beyond. Peace. Did the city renege on its affordable housing promise? By Lit Kurtz, Vendor 159. In the 2020 general election, Ann Arbor passed Proposal C with nearly 73% of voters in favor of what was considered to be the most significant expansion of affordable housing in the region in over 40 years, according to the City of Ann Arbor website. Since affordable housing has always been a touchy issue, Ann Arbor and many cities around the country it certainly raises eyebrows when a former city attorney questions whether monies appropriated to supply more affordable housing to citizens who live below the median income are used, being used appropriately. In the beginning, Proposal C assured taxpayers that more generated, that monies rather generated from the 2020 millage would be used for building, maintaining, and acquiring new affordable housing units, which are permanently affordable to low-income households, making no income up to 60% of area median income and providing social services not to exceed 20% of the mileage revenues over this entire term of the millage for the residents of such housing. The nine properties owned by the city include 353 South Main, 121 Catherine, 404 South Ashley, 721 North Main, 309 South Ashley, 350 South 5th Avenue, 415 West Washington, 1510 East Stadium, and 2000 South Industrial. Yet according to an MLive article which ran this past September, Bruce Laidlaw filed a lawsuit against the city of Ann Arbor, claiming that the city misappropriated the millage funds which were intended for affordable housing. At a time when housing shortages are at an all-time high, and specifically the number of unhoused individuals who need to find permanent housing, one might question why any of the funds allocated for providing more space to those who are experiencing that crisis would not be used to their fullest. Yet it appears as though the city has fallen short on its promise. This past September, MLive ran an article announcing the city's plans to renovate a new election center and TV studio on Miller Road in order to ensure the integrity of elections. The decision was unanimous. Outside of $1 million from city coffers, the announced election center is using $1 million in federal stimulus funding for the project, with another 800000 coming from the sale of city property at 350 South 5th Avenue to the city's funding commission. According to MLive, Laidlaw is questioning the legality of the city's move to essentially sell the 355th Avenue property to the City Housing Commission, formerly known as the YMCA, to itself, noting that the Housing Commission is part of the city government. 
The empty parking lot has long been problematic with the city failing to garner enough support to find uses for it. Housing Commission Executive Director Jennifer Hall made a convincing argument to the city for the commission to oversee property, inciting that over the past 20 years, quote, the site has been at the center of legal battles with developers and political disagreements on council, end quote. The city agreed and the eventual cost was set at $6.2 million, with $1 million coming from stimulus funding. While this is underway, Hall revealed plans to progressively include other affordable housing units on the various other planned sites within the city over the next few years. While this sounds promising, it seems doubtful that in coming years the city government will use all of its available funding resources to implement this or other plans for affordable housing. If this year is any indication, it seems that the future funding of affordable housing under the auspices of city government is destined to shrink as the city becomes infatuated with other projects and is further distracted from the housing crisis and the urgent need for affordable housing. This is Lit, Vendor 159. We are football champions. Let's dance to the drum beat of victory. Written by Mike Jones, Vendor 113. In the summer of 2023, I predicted the Michigan Wolverines, my favorite football team, would win the national championship. I was not the only person who made this prediction. Many other Michigan football fans, hopefuls like myself, wish to see our Wolverines take it to another level. The Michigan Wolverines took it to the next level by defeating the Alabama Clemson Tide in the semifinal playoff game 27-20 and then played the Washington Huskies for the college football championship on January 8th. We did it. The Michigan Wolverines defeated the Washington Huskies 34-13 and are now NCAA college football champions. Go Blue! On a related topic, the Detroit Lions are back in the NFL playoffs for the first time since 2016 and clinched the NFC North for the first time in team history. The Lions will host the former quarterback Matthew Stafford and the 10-7 Los Angeles Rams in the NFL wildcard game this Sunday at Ford Field. The Detroit Lions have made a complete turnaround under the leadership of Dan Campbell since he assumed the role of head coach in 2021. The 1991 season was the last time the Lions won the NFL playoff game, and that was the only time since 1957 in which the Lions won a playoff game. The Lions finished this year season at 12-5 and after defeating the Minnesota Vikings 30-20. I'm going to put it on the line. The Detroit Lions are going to take it to the next level, and win the conference championship and make their first appearance in the Super Bowl. Battling the Chill 
navigating the perils of frostbite. As winter's icy grip tightens, the looming threat of ice frostbite becomes an undeniable concern for those exposed to extreme cold. This cold weather menace, where skin and underlying tissues freeze due to prolonged exposure to frigid temperatures, demands a keen awareness of its dangers and a proactive approach to prevention. Dangers of frostbite. The repercussions of frostbite can be severe, ranging from tissue damage and infection risk to nerve damage and extreme cases, amputation. Extended exposure to cold triggers blood vessels to constrict, diminishing blood flow to extremities and causing harm to skin, muscles, and even bones. Signs of frostbite. Recognizing the early stages of frostbite means that it can be caught in time for treatment to be effective. These early stages present with patches of reddish skin and burning pain, progressing to cold, numb, white, or grayish skin that feels stiff or looks waxy. Expert insights and prevention measures. Dr. Sarah Coleman, Chief Medical Officer at the Cold Weather Research Institute, highlights the gravity of frostbite dangers and offers proactive preventative prevention measures. <clears throat> From our exclusive interview, frostbite is dangerous due to its potential for irreversible damage to the skin and underlying tissues. Constricted blood vessels reduce blood flow and oxygen, leading to severe complications and in, in extreme cases, amputation, warns Dr. Coleman. To preempt the risks, Dr. Coleman advises individuals to prioritize dressing in layers, ensuring thorough coverage of extremities. Opting for mittens over gloves and investing in insulated footwear are key to superior heat retention. Staying dry is crucial, as wet clothing elevates the risk of frostbite. Dr. Coleman also emphasizes taking breaks indoors to counteract exposure to extreme cold and wind if possible. Addressing common misconceptions, Dr. Coleman dispels the notion that frostbite only occurs in extremely low temperatures. Wind chill, she emphasizes, plays a significant role stripping away the body's protective heat layer and making it colder than the actual temperature. Earlier detection, Dr. Coleman stresses, is pivotal. Numbness, tingling, and changes in skin color are early warning signs. Immediate action, such as moving to a warmer environment, removing wet clothing, and gradually warming the affected area is crucial. Seeking medical attention promptly is imperative if symptoms progress. First aid steps. When faced with frostbite, taking immediate first aid steps can make a significant difference. 1. Check for hypothermia. 1A. Look for signs such as intense shivering, drowsiness, confusion, fumbling hands, and slurred speech. 1B. Seek emergency medical help if hypothermia is suspected. 2. Protect the skin. 2A. Avoid thawing affected areas if there's a chance they might freeze again. 2B. If already thawed, wrap them to prevent freezing. Number 3. Warm, frostbitten areas. 3A. For hands, tuck them into armpits. For the face, nose, or ears, cover with dry, gloved hands. Do not rub effective skin with snow or any other substance. Avoid walking on frostbitten feet or toes if possible. 4. Get out of the cold. 4A. Move to a warm space. 4B. Remove wet clothes and wrap them up in a blanket. 5. Gently rewarm frostbitten areas. 5A. Soak affected areas in warm, not hot water, 105 to 110 Fahrenheit or 40 to 43 Celsius for 
20 to 30 minutes. 5B. Test water with an uninjured hand or elbow. 5C. Do not use direct heat sources like stoves, heat lamps, fireplaces, or heating pads. 6. Stay hydrated. 6A. Drink warm liquids like tea, coffee, hot chocolate, or soup to help warm from the inside. 6B. Avoid alcohol. 7. Consider pain medicine. 7A. Over-the-counter pain relievers can be considered if in pain. 8. Expectations as th skin thaws. 8A. Tingling and burning may occur as the skin warms and normal blood flow returns. 8B. Avoid breaking any blisters. Seek medical help for more severe cases. As winter lingers, the insights from Dr. Coleman and practical guidance collectively provide a comprehensive approach for individuals to fortify themselves against the threat of frostbite. Incorporating these expert recommendations into winter routines enables people to enjoy this season while prioritizing their health and well-being, successfully navigating the perils of frostbite. In a poignant statement to the real harsh realities of winter, Jake Thompson, a homeless resident of Ann Arbor, Michigan, shared his experience in an interview battling frostbite during the bitter cold nights. Sometimes the cold bites harder than life itself. I felt the burning pain and saw my fingers turn numb and white. It was like I was losing a part of myself out there on those freezing streets, Thompson recounted. The struggle with frostbite and the unforgiving cold of Ann Arbor mirrors the stark warnings provided by experts like Dr. Coleman. Thompson's story serves as a reminder that the impact of frostbite extends beyond the medical realm, reaching individuals facing homelessness who are particularly vulnerable during the winter months. As we heed the advice of experts to protect ourselves against frostbite's peril, let us also extend our awareness and compassion to those grappling with the bitter cold on the streets, where the battle against the chill is a daily struggle for survival. Today, we will read an article by Will Shakespeare, and the title is Remembering Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Visit to Ann Arbor and Detroit. Now we start. Dr. King came to Ann Arbor in the fall of 1962, Brian A. Williams of the University's of Michigan's Bentley Historical Library wrote that King spoke on a cool fall day. Williams also noted, no recordings of King's lectures are known to exist and newspaper coverage is scant at best. In her January 16, 2023 article titled In Pictures, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, Jr.'s visit to Ann Arbor, Meredith Bruckner of the Ann Arbor News confirmed Williams' assertion and added, although 
no copies of this speeches exist, according to school records. King told UFN students, we must learn to live together as brothers, or we will perish as fools. It is fair to say that the coverage of Dr. King's visit to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor was inadequate for a transformative national civil rights leader. Bentley Historical Library Archivist Mrs. Karen Lee Jr. told the Michigan Daily newspaper there was little press coverage of King's visit and details about his lecture were sparse. Perspectives on Dr. King's visit to U of M campus. As the U of M's office of the president continues to support the new campus-wide initiative known as the Inclusive History Project, there is public interest in learning more about important events which have shaped the Michigan experience. In 2014, Michigan Radio's Mark Brosh reported on Martin Luther King Jr.'s forgotten visit to the University of Michigan's campus. He mentioned what former U of M President James Bidusta told one Michigan Daily reporter, Haley Goldberg, in 2012. Bidusta said, there apparently was a controversy because in his speech, King suggested the importance of civil disobedience. And I guess a couple of the university regents raised concern about that. He continued, it was almost 50 years ago and it was a time when Martin Luther King was a pretty controversial person. The FBI was tracking him, and so forth. A few weeks before Dr. King arrived on the Ann Arbor campus, University President Harlan Hatcher admonished the students to obey the law and avoid holding large-scale demonstrations and rallies outside the Michigan campus. As the Bentley Historical Library noted, King was on campus as the leader of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and was advocating st student civil disobedience, something that the leaders of the university at the time were likely wary of. The University of Michigan's Office of Religious Affairs invited King to their annual religious lecture on November 5, 
1962. They also invited University of Chicago theology professor Preston Robbers and Northwestern University philosophy professor Paul Phillips. The Office of Religious Affairs asked other groups on campus to co-sponsor King's visit. The U of M Office of Special Programs became a co-sponsor. The Women's International League Challenge and Voice also supported the event. The Bentley Historical Library noted that all three associated organizations were sympathetic to the causes espoused by King. The Voice Campus Political Party was established in 1960 by Tom Hayden. The Voice also became a key chapter of the new campus organization known as Students for Democratic Society. The Voice platform called for eliminating inequality, especially economic, social, and racial inequality. Although the Voice supported the Civil Rights Bill proposed by President Kennedy in 1962, they felt that it did not go far enough. The Voice also supported what John Lewis, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, was trying to accomplish in the segregated South. The challenge was a student organization established in 1960 in order to bring prominent national figures on campus to help discuss problems and issues of national importance. It originated at Yale University and spread to other campuses, including Michigan. The U of M student organization, the U of M student organizers who co-sponsored King's visit were able to include the names of 23 faculty sponsors. They included Robert N. C. Angel, Kenneth Bolden, Angus Campbell, William Haber, E. Lowell Kelly, Theodore Newcomb, and Alan F. Smith. Planners of King's visit wanted him to give a lecture in the morning and another lecture in the evening. Invitations were made to 50 to 60 people, including student organizers, to join King for a luncheon 
at the Michigan Union. Voice members Tom Hayden and Alan Haber were on the tentative program list. U of M President Alan Hatcher and his three, pre three vice presidents were also on the tentative list to launch with Dr. King. Student reporters for the Michigan Daily, Marjorie Brams and Martha McNeil said that King framed his lecture and discussion by stating that every man is here to a legacy of dignity and worthiness. And that man's essential rights do not originate from the state, but rather established by God. King touched upon integration and the, the immoral nature of racial discrimination. He expanded on that theme, pointing out that the American dream cannot be separated from the world dream of brotherhood. King told his audience at the Hill Auditorium that we must learn to live together as brothers or we will die together as fools. The Bentley Historical Library mentioned that King condemned the concept we stated that one race is superior to another, as outdated, and called for its abolition. The historical library also said the portion of King's lecture, which he directed specifically to students, urge them to take action and join the, the growing student involvement. Apparently, he had been briefed about the recent State of the University address given by President Hatcher, in which Hatcher had encouraged students to limit their involvement student movements and to restrict their activities to the campus. King sharply disagreed, telling students that they have responsibility to participate in the movement. He went on to tell them that to him, education meant being true to studies yet devoting oneself to a significant cause like integration. Dr. King inspired so many students 
who had his lectures and all talked with him on November 5, 1962. One such student became Dr. Larry Brilliant. In his 2013 commencement speech at the Harvard School of Public Health, Dr. Brilliant gave credit to Dr. King for inspiring him to his life's work, which included eradicating the world of smallpox and working for global sustainability. Unfortunately, King did not agree to a second visit, despite repeated attempts to bring him back to the Ann Arbor campus. We are grateful that he visited Ann Arbor during the heyday of the civil rights movement. He brought his perspectives on the concepts and techniques of citizen participation, humanity, moral compass, civil rights, and of course, David Thoreau's ideas of civil disobedience for peace and justice. Dr. King's visit to Detroit. Detroit was a paradox in the early 1960s. It was the fourth largest city in the nation and the population was close to two million. There was extreme poverty alongside middle-class prosperity. Dr. King was invited by the Detroit Council for Human Rights to participate in a civil rights march on the streets and a rally at Kobo Arena. What Dr. King called the greatest demonstration for freedom happened on June 23, 1963. More than 125,000 people walked down Woodward Avenue in Detroit as part of the Detroit Walk to Freedom. They also held a big rally inside and outside the Kobo Arena after the street march. They were marching in Detroit to promote civil rights. Writer Ken Coleman of the Michigan Advance newspaper noted that the idea behind the rally was to highlight social inequities in the motor city, which included housing discrimination, poor police community relations, and lack of economic opportunities for blacks and other people of color. Participants who joined Dr. King in the street march and Cuba Arena rally where thousands of ordinary folks 
Other influential people included Reverend C.L. Franklin, the father of famous singer Aretha Franklin. Reverend Franklin was also the pastor of New Bethel Baptist Church. There were other clergymen, such as Pastor Albert Krieg of Central Congregational Church and Reverend Nicholas Hood, pastor of Plymouth United Church of Christ. Former Michigan Governor John Swenson, Detroit Mayor James Kavanaugh, UAW President Walter Reuters, and many more community leaders participated in the march. Michigan Advance noted that during the June 23, 1963 event at Kobo Arena, King delivered a precursor to the I Have a Dream speech, which he gave in front of the Lincoln Memorial on August 28, 1963. In King's Detroit speech, he said, Almost 101 years ago, on September the 22nd, 1862, to be exact, a great and noble American, Abraham Lincoln, signed an executive order, which was to take effect on January the 1st, 1863. This executive order was called the Emancipation Proclamation, and it serves to free the Negro from the bondage of physical slavery. But 100 years later, the Negro in the United States of America still isn't free. The Detroit Walk to Freedom and the Kobo Arena speech by Dr. King gave much-needed impetus to the I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C. Subsequently, the Detroit and Washington, D.C. events contributed to the passage of the civil rights legislation of 1964 and the voting rights legislation of 1965. Many observers think that Dr. King's visit to Detroit energized and empowered poor blacks to fight for their rights. From the Perspectives of some journalists and committed observers, Dr. King's visit gave rise to the harnessing of black excellence in music, entertainment, art, science, and scholarship. For example, Motown founder and CEO Barry Gordy recorded Dr. King's Kubo Arena speech. It is entitled 
the greatest demonstration for freedom. God also recorded to the kings, I have a dream speech in Washington, D.C. In a January 17, 2011 article titled, Martin Luther King and the Great March for Freedom in Detroit, Michigan in Pictures magazine included, included some of King's speech in Detroit, described as Detroit's version of I Have a Dream speech. King spoke eloquently when he said, I have a dream this afternoon that my four little children, that my four little children will not come up in the same young days I came up within. But they will be judged on the basis of the content of their character, not the color of their skin. I have a dream this afternoon that one day, right here in Detroit, Negroes will be able to buy a house or rent a house anywhere that their money will carry them and they will be able to get a job. Conclusion. Dr. King's visit to the U of M campus in Ann Arbor and his visit to Detroit revealed a clear contrast in media coverage and important historical documents. Although many U of M students were thrilled to see Dr. King, some of the university leaders saw him as too controversial to share his viewpoints with the campus community. King's Detroit visit seemed like a huge celebration of common purpose and the prospects of gaining more freedom, more civil rights, equality, and racial justice. Black institutions and social movements were established in the years to come. However, they were not enough. In quotes, the more things change, the more they remain the same, is a popular saying of particular relevance to the poor, the homeless, and the disadvantaged folks of both Ann Arbor and Detroit. Thank you. Roll Me Up and Smoke Me When I Die by Ken Parks, Ground Cover Vendor 490. This song from Willie Nelson has been in my mind since Christmas with my Michigan family when we watched the star-studded 90th birthday party for Willie. His love of music and mastery of the country genre has made him 
beloved for many people of America. It would take some time to listen to all the duets he has recorded with a wide range of talents. His album, Red-Headed Stranger, was my best friend during a big heartbreak episode in my life. When I heard Willie and Friends at his 90th year, I reflected on what I want to do before I die. Seeds for Cuba came to mind. It's the next step as I follow through on things I started in the 1990s. Via Internacional is a proposal I made in Cuba for an eco-village. We did build two houses where I have a room waiting for me whenever I am there. We also have an extended family at the fink La Finca Esperanza, a small farm in our neighborhood. They have a moringa tree, one of the superfoods of our day. The war on Cuba includes stiff sanctions which create serious austerity. The government cannot support the free seeds they once did. I have a list of seeds that I want to share with the Ann Arbor Seed Company and see if they can supply for me. I will send or take whatever seeds possible to Cuba. I plan to go back in March this year. We will probably build a small house with a greenhouse on the south side. There is talk of similar demonstration projects in southeast Michigan and Brazil where people and land may work together growing whatever is nutritious and healthy with a focus on making key plants available. I hope many of us learn to grow crops such as chia until they are commonly available for everyone. Delicious recipes will follow. We will learn to promote a healthy intestinal microbiome as the center of good health. If we are timely in this work, we will benefit with healthy aging for whoever is ready. I hope we work together in 2024 and make progress as we learn more about who we are as human beings and tap into our potential. An understanding of the commons is helpful. Martin Luther King Day on January 15th at Liberty Plaza will be a good event to share in our aspirations and practical work. Go to annarborcommunitycommons.org. I will be working with Alan Haber and join in the open mic at Liberty Plaza. May 2024 be a year of blessings as we work together for the common good. Our ancestors want to help us. May we honor all those who grow up in smoke and join the ancestors. May they be reborn in a pure land. The struggle continues.
Equal Rights Amendment Revival, Scoop Stevens. In the 1970s, the Equal Rights Amendment was well on its way to becoming ratified by the states when self-appointed spokesman for women, Phil Shapley, led a movement to derail ERA ratification. Some states already had a bias against the ERA that reinforced their bias. By the article's artificial deadline imposed by Congress 1982, only 34 states had ratified it, four short of the 38 needed. We are in a new era now, and the, and, and the time has come to get the ERA back on track. On December 15, 1791, the Bill of Rights was ratified by the states. Without the Bill of Rights, the U- U.S. Constitution would have never become the law of the land. James Madison was tasked with making a Bill of Rights. Madison did not believe that they were necessary, but he was, as he was composing them, he reasoned that the purpose would be to instruct the American people about their government. As of now, 38 states have ratified the ERA, including four since the deadline passed. Even imposing that deadline is open to legal challenge. There is, there is still uncertainty because some states have rescinded their ratifications. But in 2023, the representatives started the Congressional Caucus for the Equal Rights Amendment. They should follow through to make the ERA the 28th Amendment the law of the land. In the American Civil War, 1861-65, the Union Army conquered the Confederate States of America, but the slaves did not become free men until the 13th Amendment was ratified on December 6, 1865, abolishing slavery in the United States. In the same way, women have come a long way toward achieving equality with men, but they still will be subordinate to men until the ERA becomes law. Then we can finally realize the truths of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 